So here we see David uh, up to his neck in trouble. He's facing the temptation to flee, to desert his post, to run uh, from uh, the place that God has put him. And in the first three verses of the psalm, he's facing the temptation uh, to fear, to turn away. And we don't know where this voice is coming from. It could be coming from a well-meaning friend. It could be coming from an enemy trying to tempt him to leave his post. The devil will often whisper these kinds of things in our ears in times of trial and stress. It could even be coming from his own soul. Sometimes reminded of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' famous comment when he said half our battle or more than half our battle is that we listen to ourselves too much when we should be talking to ourselves. And so we're used to hearing these kinds of arguments pleading with us to turn away from our faith and to disbelieve and run and desert our station. And the voice of unbelief always comes with great argument, doesn't it? Um, Flee as a bird. David, you're a helpless little bird. You're, You're easy to kill and you're in great danger. Run away. And and these are the reasons why. Life is so unfair. The wicked are out to get you. The danger is ready to get you. The, the arrow is on the, on the string. The, the archer has the bow bent. And you can't even see where he's shooting at you. He's shooting in the darkness. It's unpredictable, unfair, unpredictable. You, your, your life is on the line. Run for your life, David. And the, the, the situation is so unstable. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's, there's nothing to do, David, but run, desert your faith. And at times we feel like that. We feel as if all these things are against us, as if the very foundations of our lives maybe are in free fall. Like in Psalm 46, when the psalmist said, the mountains are falling into the heart of the sea. The very, the very stable um, uh, vantage points, the, the landmarks that are always there. They've always been there, these great mountains and they're collapsing into the sea. And of course, in Psalm 46, if you're in Jerusalem, which is in the mountains, when the mountains are falling, people in Jerusalem should be panicking. But that's not what you would see in Jerusalem, because in Psalm 46, we're told there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. But that's a different psalm. So here's David in a very difficult, unstable situation when danger is right there and ready to get him. The one thing, though, that the voice of unbelief, the temptation of unbelief, never speaks about, though. It never speaks about God. Verse uh, 1b and 2 and 3, this voice of temptation, it only speaks of his trouble, how big it is, how near it is, and how certain it is. And that's one of our dangers, isn't it, whenever we're in trouble? We tend to think about our trouble, the the pressures and, and difficulties of life, and we think about them without also thinking of God. And when we don't factor God into the equation, everything is always the wrong shape and the wrong size. You know, when when people are big and danger is big, God seems very, very small. And the first act of faith is always to face our trouble, to face temptation by facing God first. And that's what David does. He turns in verse four and lifts his eyes up and away from his trouble. And he thinks about God. And in particular, three things about God he reminds himself of. First of all, God's throne. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. That God um, is on the throne. Somewhere, somehow, 
someone is in control of all of this mess. I am not in this alone. There's a king, a sovereign in the universe. And of course, the throne is in heaven, high above all trouble. Everything else in creation is beneath this throne. He's completely sovereign over everything. And he's in the temple, the place where the altar is, that reminds him that somewhere someone has died to make a way for me to live before him, even though I'm a sinner. So there's a throne. That's the first thing. The second thing he's thinking, he remembers, not just God's throne, but God's eye. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. It's one of the great dangers in life that we, we can think that we've somehow fallen off God's radar, that he's lost sight of us. There was a, a friend of mine who some years ago was a Green Beret sniper in um, Afghanistan, and he was doing sniper overwatch, overwatch for a special forces team going into a, a difficult meet in an Afghan village, and they were attacked. They came under ambush, and he was able to cover his men as they got back on the helicopter to take off. But the fire from the ground was so stiff, the, the helicopter couldn't come to get him. He was left alone on the mountainside. And so he, he ran up and hid in this deserted village. And there was a, a well in the village covered by a metal grate. He lifted the metal grate up and he climbed down into the darkness. And he lodged himself down in the darkness, maybe 15, 20 feet down in the well, um, for more than a day waiting for it to be safe to come out and uh, flee for help. But down there in the darkness, he said, what's most frightening for soldiers is not that you would die in a foreign land, but that you would die and no one would know where you were, that you would die and your family wouldn't know where you were and they wouldn't know where to come and get you, as it were. And uh, it was terrifying for him. And that's the way we can feel at times. We can feel that we're out of sight and that no one knows us. No one knows our pain. No one knows our difficulty and no one knows where we are. And David reminds himself, not only is God on the throne, but that God sees him. It's like Hagar, whenever she was running from Abraham and Sarah and everything was so unfair. And God met her at the, the well called El-Ra'i, um, Lachai, the, 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 God, the, the well of the God who lives and sees me. You're never out of God's sight. You're never out of God mind, God's mind. He sees you. So God's throne, God's eye, and then lastly, God's character. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, the upright will behold his face. That the God who rules this universe is righteous, he's always righteous. And he's only righteous. Go in to the heart of God. Go in and in and in. And all you find is perfect righteousness. He will do you no wrong. He's just and holy. He's on your side. Now, immediately, though, you think to yourself, but I've been unrighteous. I'm a sinner. How can I? You know, these, these, these words, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Those are words that we can tremble to say, because am I upright? It's like the, the, in the psalm when the Lord says, when, when David says, answer me, O God, according to my righteousness. You think, how can I say that? But we must always remember that the psalms are Christ's hymn book. 
before there are hymn books. They're songs for him to sing amidst the congregation. Um, the book of Hebrews tells us in the first chapter, he sings the psalm beside us, with us, as us. We are in him and he is in us. He is the head, we are the body. And there are some words in the Psalms like this that we struggle to sing. Am I upright? Can I, can I say I've kept covenant with God and I'm upright? But David, great David's greater son comes alongside us as the Psalm singer of Israel and puts his arm around our shoulder. And he says, you're not saying, answer me, O God, according to your righteousness. You're saying, answer me, O God, according to my righteousness, because I am one with you and you are one with me. That's the logic of the gospel. It's how your sins could become mine. And it's how my righteousness can become yours. It's a wonderful thought that, that our union is so close. It's like a joint bank account with a husband and a wife. The, the debts of the one become the responsibility of the other, legally and truly. And the credits of the one become the blessing of the other, legally and truly. Christ's condemnation upon the cross was real because he could sing with the psalmist, my sins are more in number than the hairs of my head. Not that, he'd, not that he'd any sins of his own to confess. He had all of your sins and all of my sins and they became his. And by the same logic, all of his righteousness, his thoughts, his words and deeds that are perfect, couldn't be better. God looks at the life of Christ. There's nothing to be improved. It's spotless and infinite and glorious in this divine righteousness in the life of the man, Christ, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that righteousness is yours. And on that basis, this afternoon, you can come and call upon the God who's on the throne, who sees you and is for you with all of his righteous character and for all of his people across the world for whom we pray this afternoon.